Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold, and thank you for joining me today. I hope you had a great um, weekend, and it's nice to be back with you. And I've got a great show. Doug Blair's going to be joining me in just a minute, and then Dr. Greg Borgon will be in studio, and then Todd Mulliken in hour two. Lots to look forward to. But Doug Blair is a news producer for The Daily Signal. He's also the co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. Love having him on the show. Doug, welcome. Hey, Bill. How you doing? I'm well, thank you. Your Memorial weekend was good. It was lovely. I was in North Carolina for a wedding, and it was absolutely gorgeous. Fantastic. So I'm, there's so much going on right now, and I know that, um, that guns are on the top of mind right now. I know Canada is banning handguns, and the Biden administration is, is really taking this uh, gun control very seriously. What are your thoughts? Um, I think that it's a tragedy that we're we're using this as an excuse to ban Americans and, I mean, obviously our neighbors to the north, from exercising their rights as human beings. I mean, I, I think that we can all acknowledge that what happened in Texas and what happened in Buffalo are both horrific events that should never happen. But the left consistently fails to explain why banning guns in particular or, you know, taking away hardworking Americans' rights to, to protect themselves would do anything else. I mean, this is the sort of thing that we don't understand, at least in the pro-gun camp, is that there are things that we can agree on, right? We can agree on, you know, red flag laws in certain cases where people who shouldn't have guns shouldn't have access to them. The left will say, no, it's not enough for you to give up on this part. You have to actually just ban guns, period. And there's no way to negotiate with that. Mm -hmm. When you uh, constantly hear about guns being the problem, I I want to take a a step back and say, isn't what's in the human heart is what is primarily the problem. It's a sin condition, and it's a person who is uh, decided to wreak destruction on people, and guns are just the choice that he wants to use to make it happen. Absolutely. I was reflecting on this, actually, after uh, the, the shooting in Texas, and I was thinking about this, about what type of culture have we cultivated where life, especially a child's life, isn't worth or isn't worth saving. It isn't worth giving your all to protect, mm-hmm. right? What type of culture are we cultivating where people decide that the best way for them to go out and to, to live their life is to murder innocent children? And I thought about that, and it's a life without Christ. As a person who, who practices faith, like, I view that, that we're all created in his image, and the fact that we don't have that respect for his creation indicates that as a culture we have gone completely off the cliff because nihilism and this idea that life isn't worth it because it's just this pain and suffering, that's not something you have when you put Christ into your life. And so I do think that the shooter, uh, both in Buffalo and in in Texas, definitely had some sort of just nihilistic, self-defeating view of the world. And it's very sad because I, I think that that's a viewpoint that hopefully a lot of people aren't uh, you know, going to go out and act on. They're not going to do the things that the shooters in Buffalo and Texas did. But I do think that a lot of people in America right now feel hopeless. They feel like it's not, life isn't worth living. 
Mm-hmm. I always go back to a passage, uh, Doug, in Second Timothy chapter two, that talks about um, opponents of the gospel must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth, and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. So when I sometimes see uh, people doing horrific acts of, of evil, I think in a way they're, they're, in, they're captive to the enemy who's taken them captive to do his will. I think that's a beautiful passage, and I think you're absolutely right. And it's something that we as people of faith really need to be emphasizing. And it's not something that needs to be done at a governmental level. It's not something that needs to be done at a policy level. It's something that needs to be done at a person-to-person level. I think we were having this conversation a couple of weeks ago where a lot of these types of topics that we're talking about are from a failure of the soul, from a failure of the spirit, to recognize that life is sacred, that life is worth something, and that we should strive to help our fellow man. And I think a lot of these topics that we're talking about, poverty, uh, violence, you know, a lot of these issues that the right and the left seem to disagree with, it's mostly just an issue of, well, what is worth living? What mm-hmm. is worth salvaging? It's life, it's, it's relationships, it's friendships, it's love. It's all of these things that the radical left, I think, just kind of doesn't believe in because they view the world as this deep, dark, evil place. Or as we as people of faith believe that, of course, there are bad things that happen in the world, but Christ created us and that we need to be good in his image and we need to spread that word and that love. Yeah, when they only play the mental illness card, that's when I, I get, I, I, I start to question if they're really thinking through this completely, because I, I see it as way more than that. I, obviously, I think there's evil in the heart and there's, you know, kids that are grow, growing up on Call of Duty and they're, they're simulating these video games or they're killing people all day long. And then they yeah. get bullied, and I, I want to say things like, "What was your, what did your youth group say?" Well, you weren't in a youth group. Well, what, what about last weekend at church? Oh, you didn't go. You know, I can, you keep going down the list of things that probably aren't going on in this young person's life. If you're on the fringe, who's coming alongside and reaching out? Absolutely, no. It is this sense of social isolation that I think is driving a lot of these horrific acts of senseless violence, because you hear it all the time, right? Oh, well, I didn't know. Well, how didn't you know? Did you interact with this person? Well, no. Okay, well, if somebody had been there, if somebody had been willing to have those conversations with these types of people, then I think we would see a lot less of this happening. But we've become so separated. We've become so atomized in this country. We've lost those bonds that, that, that kept us together. I think that the church has been a wonderful way of doing that. Faith is something that keeps people together because it also keeps you looking up. It keeps you looking towards something good in the future, right? You don't mm-hmm. act good on this planet because you're expecting you know, a reward on earth. You're expecting a reward in heaven. So having those bonds of faith that tie you to each other and tie you to something greater than yourself is really something that we need to, to kind of bring back in this country. Otherwise, we're going to keep seeing these types of horrific, senseless acts of violence. Yeah. Um, as a believer, you have the Holy Spirit restraining you in certain areas of your life. And thank goodness that the Holy Spirit does do that. But if you are outside of God's family and you are living in darkness and you are living a life that's completely miserable, uh, yeah, there can be terrible things that happen. Terrible, terrible things. Yeah. So uh, I read an article in the Daily Signal. You can always go to dailysignal.com to read more of Doug because he's there all over the place. But you wrote a very interesting article on what's what's going on in San Francisco right now, how schools are removing chief from job titles all over due to racism concerns. 
Oh, this was such a fun article to write because it comes from my neck of the woods. I'm from the West Coast, so I had heard all of these types of things before. But, yeah, so San Francisco Unified School District has decided that the word chief uh, as like a chief financial officer, chief executive officer, uh, is racist. It needs to be removed from the school district because some Native Americans were offended. Uh, I'd like to point out that chief is not actually a Native American word. It's a French word. Uh, but for whatever reason, since they use it, it is now the exclusive property of Native Americans, American Indians, and we can no longer use it if, if they're offended by it. So it just goes to show that the left seems to believe that they only have control over these words and that anybody who wants to use something that is being used by a particular minority group either needs the express permission of every single member of that group or they just can't use it at all. I mean, we've seen words like this that have cropped up that have these very tenuous grips or tenuous connections, excuse me, to other maybe racial elements. So the word spook, I heard back in like the 60s or the 40s or something very, very long time ago was possibly a racial slur for black people. As somebody who, you know, grew up in the new millennium, I, I, I've never heard that in my life. It took me a lot of research to find that out. But the left seems to think the worst out of every single word that gets used. That's why they ban chief. That's why they're trying to ban this word spook. That's why they're trying to ban other words that they think have these bad origins. Because, again, like we're saying, the left doesn't believe in the good in people. They only see the bad. So you work your way all the way up to chief executive officer in a company, and they can't even call you that anymore, huh? I guess not. I mean, I guess, and the funniest thing to me, too, is that they said, well, we don't know what we're going to replace it with. It's like, it seems like you probably should have had an idea before you said, well, we're just going to get rid of it, right? Like, yeah. it doesn't seem normal that you're just like, ah, we'll, we'll figure it out later. It's like, no, like, if you're going to replace it with something, you need to at least give me an explanation. You can't just say that's racist and get rid of it. But the, and the accurate origin of words doesn't seem to matter, does it? Correct. I mean, again, that's that's one of the things that's really essential to me is if it, it was a, a word that was being misused, then we would maybe have this type of discussion. But chief is a French word. It comes from French. It's been used throughout history to refer to leaders of organizations like obviously companies and businesses. But, yeah, of course, it's being used to refer to uh, tribal leaders in the American Indian culture. But that doesn't mean that's the only thing that it refers to. And the fact that the radical left seems to have this thing where it refuses to acknowledge that there are other uses to words other than their preferred usage, I mean, it, it's not sustainable. I mean, what, what's, what's the next word that's going to get used? Oh, you know, black is also a color, but you can't use the word color, uh, black as a color, because that's a skin color. So we'll have to think of another word to describe that. It, 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 I don't know where it ends, because it yeah. really doesn't seem to have any logical conclusion. Yeah, I mean, you think of the chief of police and the, the chief of the fire department, and you think of all the people who hold this title. It would be a, a mass a reorganization of uh, titles and business cards. I think of what that does to the printing company, all the printers that can print new business cards. <laughs> that's, that's really what this is. This is a big printing company trying to get their way. <laughs> that's the conspiracy. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, and then I saw uh, another uh, person that is running for, oh, I lost, I lost, I had it bookmarked and it went away. Uh, this woman in uh, Los Angeles who want, wants to run on the uh, premise of eliminating the police department. And I think, who who listens to these people? Serious. But that's the thing that's so scary is that we can always laugh and say, ah, well, that's just California. Ah, that's just Portland. Ah, that's just Seattle. But these ideas tend to spread. I think I remember back when I was growing up, a lot of people looked at college campuses and they said something along the lines of, well, college kids are nuts but at least it sticks around there, right? This right. sort of cancel culture stays on the campus. Well, we were wrong. 
we were absolutely wrong that these things stay contained because these people achieve positions of power. These people get into politics. They get into business. And all of a sudden, Joe Biden, the president of the United States, the most powerful country on the planet, seems to have an aversion to saying the word woman and refuses to say it and says birthing person instead. That's where we're at right now is that our leaders are now kowtowing to the demands of these radical groups. So it starts in California. It ends in the White House. Mm-hmm. Doug, let me take a short break. Doug Blair is my guest. He's the uh, news producer for The Daily Signal. He's also the co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. You can head over to dailysignal.com. When we come back, uh, I'm going to ask him about uh, businesses who donate to Planned Parenthood. He wrote an article on that at dailysignal.com. We'll check into that when we get back. Welcome back to the show. Douglas Blair is my guest. We're going to have to get Doug his own walk-up music because that's Rob Bluey's music. But he also is at The Daily Signal. He is a, a news producer there, also the co-host of The Daily Signal podcast. And, Doug, let me ask you about um, businesses who are donating to Planned Parenthood. You wrote a story on that, and I didn't get to read it, but I'd love to hear about it. Sure. So one of the things that we always recognize is that Planned Parenthood bills itself as this grassroots organization, but in reality, they're receiving a lot of their funding from some of the businesses that your listeners could be uh, patronizing or buying products from. So what The Daily Signal did is we decided to take a look into what businesses were donating money to Planned Parenthood. And what we found was this, this massive list. Uh, it was almost 100 different businesses. Some of them are, are very obscure. They're, they're smaller ones that you might not have heard of, but some of them like Adobe, American Express, uh, eBay, like these are businesses that will all match donations that are their employees give to Planned Parenthood with company funds. So it's very important for, for consumers uh, to look into what businesses are doing because you could be inadvertently supporting a company that is donating to the biggest abortion provider in the country. Well, that is important information for people to know because they, they can vote with their feet in their pocketbooks, which is an important thing to uh, have uh, as Christians, we should be able to do and do it uh, readily. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the things that's very important about holding businesses to account, where we basically can't say anymore, well, I trust that they're not doing bad stuff. I can support them with my wallet. Uh, no, sometimes we'll see that businesses like, you know, the ones that I mentioned, but also something like Gap, you know, you're buying clothes for your kids and all of a sudden you've, you've inadvertently donated to somebody to get an abortion, right? Like that's what we're, what the stakes are here. It's not, it's not enough anymore to trust that businesses will do the right thing. Now we have to be cognizant and make them know that if they're going to do something like donate money to Planned Parenthood and abort, and abort babies, we, we will not support them. They will not receive financial compensation. They will not receive support from conservatives. Mm-hmm. The UPenn swimmer, Leah Thomas, seems to be back in the news. Um, and this is uh, uh, an interesting, evolving story. Yeah, um, it's, it's definitely one of the more disappointing stories that I've heard. I was kind of hoping that after he 
did his big stuff in the pool. Eventually, people started to get angry that a man was competing against women and that they would stop talking about him. But here we are again. He gave, a, he gave his first televised interview with Good Morning America, and all of a sudden, Leah Thomas is back in the news. So for listeners who might not be aware, Leah Thomas used to be a swimmer at the University of Pennsylvania. He is a man. He is a biological man. He went through puberty. He, he is humongous. He looks like a dude. Uh, But he's competing against women. And that's really kind of the face of this argument is this guy who decided that he identified as something and therefore was, you know, not just right to do it, but he was justified in doing it. He was justified in swimming and competing against biological women. Now, the radical left will try to claim that there is absolutely no difference between a biological man and a biological woman in the pool, especially since Leah Thomas had been taking uh, testosterone suppressants for the last year. But, I mean, even just looking at this individual, you can tell that there's obviously going to be a disadvantage faced by the women against this dude in the pool. Uh, The New York Times even actually released an article today where they basically talked to a doctor, and the doctor said in no uncertain terms that this man has a biological advantage, even though he had been taking suppressants for over a year against women. So I, I find this story to be very disappointing. It's very depressing to me that the radical left seems to have at least successfully conned the, the, the media into saying that there is no difference between a man and a woman. But anybody with eyes can tell that this is not right. It's not just that a man can compete against women and destroy them. It, it's not even close. He, he, uh, he did a race against a, a particular woman who, had, who was really, really talented. She was a very good swimmer. Uh, there was a 38-second gap in between when he placed and when she placed. That mm-hmm. is not normal. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's significant. Um, and what are you supposed to tell the female competitors? You should just train harder when you're getting beat by 38 seconds? Yeah, that's basically what the radical left has decided we're going to do now. We're not going to acknowledge that biological differences exist. It is all at the altar of the self. To bring this back to a sort of religious perspective, because I really enjoy talking about that, this is something that like kind of offends me on a deep personal level as a person of faith. It's basically saying God got it wrong, where you're saying that, you know, he made you in this way, but he made a mistake. You were supposed to be a woman. And like, it's, it's very strange to me that we're having this discussion about what you identify as it's like i don't it doesn't matter what you identify as you are this like Mm -hmm. i can't say that i'm one thing and then pretend to be the other you are that thing you are a man or you are a woman and biologically speaking and athletically speaking we're sort of seeing the consequences of that with leah thomas in the pool when you talk about pool and swimming i just saw too in the news that the top paid los angeles lifeguards earn over five hundred thousand dollars so when I read that, I think today's my last day on the job. <laughs> Maybe I'm in the wrong business too. Maybe yeah, Doug, let's, let, let's meet in California and try to get jobs as lifeguards. Let's do it. I mean, uh, just don't call me chief lifeguard. <laughs> Trust me. Another uh, listener jumped in and said, what about the song Hail to the... Then, then what do you say? Hail to the, the non-binary, non-specific individual. <laughs> yeah. So what is uh, the word on the street with the rising inflation in D.C.? Uh, word on the street is that it's bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, bad here, too, just so you know. Yeah, no, it's terrible across the country. Last week, we actually hit a very uh, dubious honor, which was it, across all 50 states, gas has hit an average of over $4. So it doesn't matter where you are, West Coast, East Coast, even in Hawaii, it's going to cost you at least $4 to get 
uh, to fill up your tank. I mean, this is an utter failure by the Biden administration to do this. And we keep hearing this this plan, right, that they're going to do something to tamp down on these inflation costs. But all of the solutions tend to make things worse. The administration also seems to be quite obsessed with blaming Putin for this, blaming the Russians for this price hike in the uh, in the gas industry, right, where we're, we're blaming the Russians for making it that the gas is over four dollars a gallon. But that's not true, because we, we were able to see before the invasion of Russia or of Ukraine even happened that prices were on the rise. So we can point directly to the incompetence of the Biden administration as, as the culprit for this. Uh, they're going to try and blame other sources, but it's important for us to hold them to account and not let them get away with that. Mm-hmm. Doug, did we miss something? I mean, is, is this part of a wonderful plan that they have? And this is what the left would like to do is get gas prices to $10 a gallon, and then we go, look, at now we'll take whatever we can get in terms of electric cars or whatever, because we can't, we can't survive anymore on this. Absolutely. No, I mean, we've seen some of the administration officials try and make that point, right? Pete Buttigieg a couple of months ago, when he was asked, you know, what, what should Americans do about this? He goes, well, you know, they should buy electric cars, which sounded so tone deaf to, to us watching that, where it's like, OK, well, you know, not everybody has the resources to buy an electric vehicle. On top of that, electric cars do not have the infrastructure set up to, you know, travel across the country, get you to where you need to go. Mm-hmm. If you live in Los Angeles or San Francisco, sure, fine. There's charging stations everywhere. You're able to do that. But imagine somebody living in maybe rural Minnesota, somebody living in rural Utah, somebody living in the heartland who can't do that and is being told by somebody who is supposed to be dealing with this that it's not actually his fault. It's your fault for not having an electric car. Yeah, that person needs to maybe buy a $2,200 truck and start uh, going to work and hauling his equipment and gear and starting to make a living and pay his bills or her bills. Right. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. I would would yeah, I would find it very difficult to move my equipment to go to the construction site in a tiny little electric car. <laughs> yeah, Doug, we just have a couple of minutes left. What else is on your desk that you're interested in talking about? Absolutely. Well, one of the things that I think is really fascinating is education. We're still seeing some of the pushback from uh, the pandemic where people were feeling as if their kids were not learning actual you know, hard sciences. They mm-hmm. weren't learning math, reading, and writing. They were learning woke literature, and they were learning about critical race theory. So it's been very interesting to track how a lot of these organizations have been you know, sort of delegitimized de- in the eyes of the American people. School choice has never been stronger in this country. Uh, and we're starting to see this rising tide of parents either removing their children from public schools to either teach them on their own, put them into co-ops. But what we're really seeing is a revolution in the terms of how this country is going to educate its children. I think a lot of these issues, too, that we've been discussing today, Bill, are really related to the fact that our kids are not learning what they need to learn. They're learning what the radical left wants them to know. Uh, instead of like actual hard and, and important things like reading, writing, and math. They're learning about these woke ideologies. So we can start to see then this transition from leftist ideology in schools, gender ideology, critical race theory, to more important things that parents are going to focus on. And I think that that can only lead to improved outcomes. Mm-hmm. Doug, always nice to have you on. Thank you so much for taking uh, your time today. I know you've got a lot on your plate. I appreciate you uh, very much. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Bill. You bet. Douglas Blair has been my guest. You can go learn about him at DailySignal.com. We'll come back with Dr. Greg Borgon. We're going to talk about godly communication. I'm looking forward to that. Hour two, Todd Mulliken will be joining me. I can't wait. Be right back.
It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Prime time, drive time, let's get it started. Jump in your car, what's for dinner? It's the Afternoon Show with Bill Arno. Welcome to the show. If you just joined me, you missed a great half hour with Douglas Blair, but I now have Dr. Greg Borgon in studio. And I love Proverbs twelve eighteen. It says the there is there is let's see. There's one whose harsh words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. So the power of the tongue can heal or destroy. That's what we're going to be talking about today with yeah. Dr. Greg Borgon. He is a author and fantastic leader of men. He is at heartofawarrior.org. Greg, welcome back. Oh, it's good to be back. Thanks. Well, it might be helpful since our last time to refresh uh, the audience that may have been listening that first time when we introduced the subject of um, communication fidelity. And I'd like to focus our attention on this time, though, is just the important topic of godly communication. So currently, uh, we're experiencing, as we've probably noted, unprecedented and unbridled and unrestrained communication in the form of manipulative uh, inf- uh, misinformation or the suppression of free speech. It's a big topic in the news today. So such communication is too often used to mislead or hurt the respondent. I don't care what channel you listen to or what network you listen to. You can pick up on that. So the power of the tongue can heal or destroy, and the scripture you just mm-hmm. read adequately underscores the importance of it. Perhaps you uh, that are, are listening received a message via some social media platform that may have compelled you to question its validity, something inside of you as a follower of Christ, the Spirit, something's amiss here. Or uh, maybe uh, you called into question this message you received, your beliefs or your values, or maybe even angered you. The temptation, of course, is to respond in kind, to emote, to refute, or to blast the messenger. So before we respond that way, let's consider a few things. Let's. In this day, we often communicate our thoughts and feelings through social media platforms like Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Snapchat, Tumblr, TikTok, and other social media platforms, and of course, email. So sometimes we hide behind our screens and communicate things we would not want to communicate in person for good or for bad. It's always braver to be behind a screen than it is to be in front of a person. So sometimes it gives us the freedom to say things we wouldn't normally say face-to-face, mm-hmm. and not, not all of that is good. Communication between God and us or between another person and ourselves can easily be misinterpreted or misunderstood or manipulated for purposes of ill will or harm. I've seen an upsurge of late of people using Scripture to bludgeon somebody into submission because they come to the communication process with an agenda seeking to undermine or to control or to dominate. And it's so easy to do that behind a screen instead of being in person. But anyway, communication between God and us or between another person and ourselves is easy to be misunderstood. So all communication begins with the source. And the source could be a friend, it could be a relative, it could be somebody that uh, looked on your web page and decided they wanted to communicate with you. Um, it could be somebody that really has an agenda um, and uh, wants that agenda satisfied, and so we're the target mm-hmm. oftentimes. 
So regardless of the source, the message can be communicated verbally. It can be communicated non-verbally, especially if you're using something like Zoom. You might be saying something verbally with your words, but your body language communicates an entirely different message. Uh, so that's possible as well. Or it could be communication in writing, visually, or even electronically. The destination for the communication may be a particular audience, a specific group, or a person. But let's talk about just communicating to another person. So the message can be misrepresented, it can be garbled, it can be altered, it can be twisted, falsified, it can be misleading or interfere with the true intention of the transmitted message when it's compromised by untruths and lies. So this interference, in my view, Bill, can only be mediated or clarified by tuning your listening skills through the discipline of seeking the truth. So this can be done by asking, you know, questions such as, did I understand you correctly when you said this? Mm-hmm. Or maybe we say, let me repeat back what I heard you say, what I understand you to mean. Because oftentimes we reply or we give answers to questions nobody's really asking until we clarify what their intent is. Well, that requires listening, though, too. Oh, absolutely and does. maybe I'm not listening to you. Maybe I'm just waiting for you to stop talking so I can start talking. Well, that's why most communication today is a monologue and not a dialogue. Mm-hmm. Even though we might be communicating with somebody else, we're already preparing our answer and not listening to what the person is saying because we want our message to get out. Listening is hard work. Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And it's a lost art today. It is. Another approach may be to simply ask, what is informing your message? What circumstances are influencing your remarks? What supports your argument? What is influencing your comments? I mean, when you ask somebody those kinds of questions, it causes them to think, and it also will inform you if they really do have an agenda. They won't answer those questions. But you're really honoring them by giving them an opportunity to clarify. It's kind of like, Biblical interpretation, where you want to know what's called authorial intent. What did the author of the original text in Scripture mean when they said this in the culture in which it was presented? And until you understand that, the actual intent, it's hard for you to interpret or understand the implications for you. So this is kind of a form of it. You're trying to get at the heart of what are they really trying to communicate. We're not great communicators, even though we use a lot of words. Oftentimes, we have to go beyond the words to find out or to ask the question, which honors the message sender um, by finding out what do you really mean before we respond. Uh, the the knee-jerk act reaction is to respond immediately. Um, so determining what shapes uh, the messenger's observations or proclamations will help you better understand their true intent. Are their comments based on truth or fiction? I mean, they're not going to tell you that, Mm -hmm. but you need to ask yourself that question. Is the message based on a personal bias, incorrect perceptions, or uninformed observations? What merit should you, the hearer, attach to the remarks? So interference like this in terms of understanding what they're actually trying to convey and what you're actually hearing and then decoding that in your own mind is an important exercise if you want to effectively communicate with somebody else, even if they have a differing opinion of, or, or, or hold a, a different position than you do. So, I mean, when we're positioning ourselves in a conversation about our faith and about God's truth and um, our own personal 
story and testimony, we have to make sure that we are obeying these rules. Yeah. If we really want to be effective. Well, it's the art of understanding whether or not you're dealing with a skeptic or a cynic in often mm-hmm. cases. You know, a skeptic um, needs to reach a certain threshold of understanding before they're ready to really listen to what you have to say. So the best way to deal with a skeptic is simply answer the questions they're asking. Good point. If it's a cynic, they think they have all of the answers. And the honorable thing to do with reverence and gentleness, as Scripture calls us to do, is to simply question the answers they're giving. How did that correlate to what you said before? How do you understand this comment based on what you said before this comment? Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of a thing. So there are some legitimate interferences that sometimes we have to overcome. Maybe a language barrier, for instance. Sure. It could be ethnicity in terms of somebody living in a different ethnic environment than you are. And it's in, and until you find some common ground of understanding, oftentimes it takes clarification by having each of you define what you really are saying or meaning or, or a word that you might be using. Social or, or cultural values may be uh, causing some interference. Environmental factors, it could be even intellect. It could be spiritual maturation. And, and sometimes we're we give answers to people thinking that they're spiritually mature that could cause more harm than it could good. Mm-hmm. So we have to be concerned about that. Emotions, distractions, personal biases. Uh, worldview is a, is a critical thing. What worldview is that person using to communicate with you? Mm-hmm. What worldview are you using to hear what they're having to say? And so theological frameworks or conflicts can also be an impairment. Physical impairments Uh, could be a problem. One of the biggest problems, I think, Bill, that's often not talked about is simply sin, Mm -hmm. which is a huge barrier to communication. I mean, unconfessed sin or um, operating from an emotion that is not God-honoring will not facilitate godly communication. So to mediate the interference and understanding of the facts, the evidence available, um, even our understanding of Scripture— And making sure that we're processing what we're hearing, or even maybe it's us as the message sender and wanting to communicate a message to somebody else. So a biblical worldview is important. Um, That's the lens through which we make sense of our observations from Mm -hmm. God's point of view. So what we choose to inform, condition, uh, and establish our understanding will provide counsel to how we interpret um, what we hear or read. So the questions that we need to ask uh, of the one communicating with us uh, might include, for instance, what informs your comments? That's a great question. You know, what stands in authority over what you are saying? How is it shaping what you say? Where'd that come from? Um, From from the Bible. I mean, Christ, when when you look at and read how he communicated with others, sometimes um, he would ask them questions to help them clarify what they were thinking. So it it matters what stands in the position of authority over what you believe and value because it'll condition and affect any kind of behavior that follows. And so if you know what their authority is, which may be secular humanism, it doesn't mean that you don't communicate with them. It's just now you understand you have to adjust the way in which you communicate because you're dealing with somebody who's a secular humanist who believes that there is no um, existence or that God doesn't exist. Right. Um, another question you could ask is, what is the source of your information? 
that can sometimes stop somebody dead in the track because oftentimes we blurt out well, things. Well, it's something I heard. <laughs> yeah, it's something I heard. Yeah. Or friends told me, yeah. or I've heard it said, or authorities said. They say. <laughs> they say. I love they. They yeah. say. Who are they? Yeah, exactly. Right? Exactly. Another question might be, what are the facts that support your contentions? If you could help me out, I really want to understand you. If you could give me a couple of facts that support what you're saying, uh, that would give me an ability to better understand what you're trying to say to me. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, a, that's a graceful way of asking that kind of question. And, you know, finally, uh, another question you might ask him is, well, I hear what you're saying, but what do you think the Bible says about this matter? Well, they don't know what the Bible says. Well, if you're communicating with another Christian they who has should. an agenda. They should. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so, I mean, if you're dealing with that and you know that person is claims to be a Christian, then resorting to understanding what the Bible says on that matter may help guide the conversation, may actually take it off into another different vein that was intended originally. Now, the questions you have to ask yourself in the process of this communication, this godly communication, hopefully, what is, the tr- what is truth and what is fiction? Mm-hmm. What are my or the messenger's biases or predispositions on the matter? And may, we may have been on a long trail of communication with this individual, and so we may have some idea about where they're coming from. So we have to keep that in mind. What is the purpose or objective of the communication? Sometimes, Bill, when I get into a communication process via electronic media or even on the phone, I'll say, what do you hope to uh, gain uh, as a result of this communication. Yeah. What's the outcome you're looking for? Yeah, what's the outcome that you're looking for? Mm-hmm. If you know that ahead of time, then you can condition how you're going to respond or you can, and, you know, guide, it's going to guide your response. Yeah, what if they just want to club you over the head with their ideology? Well, then why respond to them mm-hmm. and say, you know what, um, I don't think that healthy communication is going to ensue based on what's been said already. Mm-hmm. And I'd be glad to go ahead and and talk to you at a later time uh, if you're willing to have that kind of conversation. Mm-hmm. Godly communication, that's what we're talking about with Dr. Greg Borgon. The power of the tongue can heal or destroy. That's from Proverbs 12. We'll take a short break and be right back. about Dr. Greg Borgon, you know he loves this song. This is his theme song, Heart of a Warrior. You can learn more about him at heartofawarrior.org. That's his website. He's an author, speaker, facilitator, all-around amazing teacher of God's Word, professor here at adjunct professor at University of Northwestern. Mm -hmm. Does it all. Well, let's pick up where we left off. So um, the other question you might have to ask yourself internally in this process of communication, and oftentimes email gives you that, that time to be able to do that, is how is God honored by this guy, or how will God be honored by great, this conversation? Great question. Is the intent to build up or tear down? What are the motives behind the communication? And this is a key question, Bill. What am I being asked to do with a message communicated, which goes again to what do you hope to, to gain by this conversation? Mm, that's a big question. Yep. Is the request made of me spiritually? Uh, uh, is it the request made of me spiritually and biblically sound? So those are some important questions. So whatever is received um, must be evaluated and tempered by wisdom. More specifically, 
godly wisdom. Mm-hmm. So uh, we need to exercise godly wisdom before we respond to these received messages. So one Christian writer describes godly wisdom as follows. Godly wisdom is, of course, from God and honors God. Godly wisdom starts with the fear of God and results in a holy life. Worldly wisdom, on the other hand, is not concerned with honoring God, but with pleasing oneself. With worldly wisdom, we may become educated, street smart, and have common sense that enable us to play uh, the world's game successfully. Godly wisdom, however, enables us to prepare ourselves for eternity. With godly wisdom, we trade earthly values for biblical values. We recognize we're citizens of another kingdom, and we make choices that reflect that allegiance. Having a, a godly wisdom means we strive to see life from God's perspective and act accordingly. So the message we receive should always be processed uh, through uh, and mediated by the filter of, of godly wisdom. Mm, amen. God and his word are the source of godly wisdom. James 1.5 tells us that if you ask for wisdom, God will give it to us generously without finding fault. If, you, if any of you lacks wisdom, James 1.5 says he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. And when you're attacked via these different social media platforms or in a conversation, um, that should be remembered, uh, that we need to give honor to God when the information conveyed is processed through this filter bill of godly wisdom, the actions you take will become obvious. For instance, some possible actions. Disregard the message entirely because any response will be misunderstood or co-opted for further harm. Mm-hmm. So it may very well be that you've received this message and there's no good going to come of it. And even in the course of some preliminary conversation, we realize that then maybe we should just completely cut off the communication, or if we've just received it and prayed over it, maybe we need to disregard it altogether because we may be being baited into a conversation. Yeah, don't take the bait. Don't take the bait. I like that. Number two, determine the truth of or within the comments and respond accordingly in accordance with godliness. So even though there may be a lot of words around what they're trying to intend, try to focus in on uh, what's really important in this conversation and respond to that. What's worth retaining? What should be discarded? What should be further investigated? Uh, number three, forward the correspondence to higher authority if deemed harmful or threatening. If you receive, the audience listening, if you receive communication that in any way includes a threat, implied or otherwise, mm-hmm. then you need to cut off that conversation right away and report it. And, and you don't have to feel bad about that. And then the point is stop any further communication with the messenger. It's going to be of no help. And that's kind of hard to do. The, the, the fourth uh, suggestion or action, always bathe your response in prayer and in, cult, in consultation with God's word. So when we began this subject last month, we called it communication fidelity. And what that simply means, Bill, is the degree of exactness with which something is copied or reproduced or the integrity of the message it depends how the message is filtered when received. So as I stressed, godly wisdom informed by God and his word is the best means of separating interfering noise from the message itself. So let me just share a final word on, on this subject, Bill. The following biblical guidance from a writer 
uh, ForgotQuestions.org, uh, should be in the forefront of our minds. And he says this, We must examine how we communicate with our fellow man. It goes without saying that no filthy communication should escape from the lips of a Christian, whether said in jest or in earnest, according to Colossians 3.8. James speaks clearly on this subject in James 1.19. My dear brothers, he says, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. When we speak in anger, we fail to show God's love. Whether speaking to a family member or a stranger, our communication should always come forth in a loving manner. Otherwise, our testimony is damaged, as is the name of Jesus Christ, when his people fail to guard their tongues. The writer goes on to say, the best way to be sure that uh, what comes from our mouths is pure is to be aware of what is in our hearts. As Jesus reminded the Pharisees, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Mm -hmm. If our hearts are filled with ungodliness, it will eventually come forth in our speech, no matter how hard we try to restrain it. Of course, our most important communication demand should be a fulfillment of Matthew 28, uh, 19 and 20, the Great Commission, as we communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ, a world that desperately needs it. So finally, Bill, believers should constantly examine their communication. We should consider the tone of uh, newer forms of communication, such as email, and text messaging. We should never allow the safety of a computer screen to lead us to harsh or ungodly words towards others. We should consider our bodily language and facial expressions towards others as well, especially when we're using a visual medium. Mm -hmm. Simply withholding words is meaningless when our body language communicates uh, disdain, anger, or hatred toward another. So engaged in conversation as we prepare to speak, we should ask ourselves this question. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? That gives us a lot to think about. Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. I mean, we need to guard our communication, and, and oftentimes the most unguarded communication is with our loved ones. And we say things that we think they're going to understand, but they may be interpreted as um, hurtful. Mm-hmm. And um, it's ridiculous that statement says that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's the biggest the lie opposite, out there. Yeah, it is. That's it's the, the opposite lie. is true. It yeah. creates deep emotional scars. Well, I bet everyone listening has heard something in their past that they still have in their brain. Absolutely. That they heard maybe when they were 11. Nickname they were given or... Something, yeah. It's, it's something, yeah. Mm-hmm. And there's so many different ways. I appreciate your you bringing this conversation into... 2022, where there's so many different ways to communicate, and mm-hmm. so many of them are behind a screen yes, where they are. You, you have a different approach than you would if you were face-to-face with somebody. Oh, yeah. It, it's exaggerated bravery oftentimes behind a, a, a computer screen. It, it gives us the freedom to say whatever we want. We can always shut off any criticism of what we say, but that is not what God would intend for us. Mm-hmm. If we're going to represent Him in this fallen world and it's getting darker, then it's got to be out of love. And it's unconditional love. It doesn't mean you have to be emotionally involved with the person that you're communicating with. It just simply means that you have an unconditional regard for the well-being and welfare of another individual, even if they're unlikable. Craig, what's the verse about repaying evil for evil? Paying evil for evil. I'm trying to look it up real quick. Uh, it's First Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to do this, you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Absolutely. 
great scripture. Yeah, I love that verse. Yeah, it's yeah. excellent. And I think if we keep that in the forefront of our mind when we're having conversations with people, we're going to make better choices. Yes, we are. Yeah, that's encouraging. I appreciate this study. This is an important study to be reminded of and to uh, brush up on. You can um, uh, be reminded that we are, our words are powerful. That's what I was trying to say. <laughs> you know, you get a couple of days off and you kind of got to get your edge back. <laughs> oh, I got to get that energy going again, yeah. that I mean, mind to, movie. <laughs> yeah. I mean, today is, it's a fake Monday because it's Tuesday. <laughs> yes, it is. Usually I don't see you until Tuesday. Are you sure it's Tuesday? I don't Bill? know what day it is. All I know is I had a couple of days off and here I am again. So, uh, Greg, thanks for being here and thanks oh, for the study. Joy. It's been great. Right. Dr. Greg Borgond has been my guest and you can go to heartofawarrior.org to learn more about Greg. So when we come back... I'm going to have uh, Todd Mulliken in studio for the full hour. And you know Todd because he's a regular guest. And we are going to talk about relationships. And uh, we're going to learn a lot of good stuff in the next hour. So we'll be right back in just a minute. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.